Welcome to the SNZ Shop Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Dorian Grenier, and this is episode number two. In today's show, we'll cover some topics surrounding strength and conditioning, mostly um, in relation to swimmers and lacrosse players. So I'm excited to have Tyler Shillington on today. Tyler is a strength and conditioning coach who started out as a physio assistant coming out of Dalhousie's University Kines program. He is the owner and founder of PIT, Performance Inspired Training, and has been in the sport and fitness industry for the past eight years. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you've been working with some national level swimmers, lacrosse players, and a variety of other athletes over the last couple of years, as well as helping people in the general population recover from acute and chronic injuries. You're correct, sir. And welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dorian. This will be awesome. I'm really looking forward to this one. So for the people that don't know you yet, maybe give us a quick insight into how you got to this point, what you're up to at the moment, and what kind of projects you're involved in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I kind of fell into strength and conditioning. Um, you know, my plan going through school was to become a physiotherapist. Uh, long story short, didn't get my reference letters in time from my professors, so I was going to have to take a year off. With that, uh, you know, kind of... People who knew people who knew people got me into the strength and conditioning world. Um, and then, as they say, I guess uh, the rest is history. Um, so it uh, I ended up being where I wanted to be, um, just not from the path that I thought I was I was going to take. You know, I wanted to get into physio uh, as an athlete growing up. My career was ended with a shoulder injury, torn labrum that nobody could help me with. Um, so that was kind of why I wanted to get into the rehab world. And uh, now I get to hopefully prevent those injuries or, or mitigate the chances of those injuries as well as help people kind of come back from that. So like I said, I ended up kind of where I wanted to be, just just not in the, the realm that I thought originally. Um, so how I ended up in Calgary, I guess, was I started in Kingston, born and raised. Uh, that's where I ended up after university. Spent two and a half years there, kind of realized that uh, the place I was at, I was kind of getting to the end of my leash. I uh, wasn't really learning what I wanted to learn at that point because I was kind of the top dog. And uh, two and a half years into a career, I, I didn't want to kind of be at the end of my rope, so to say. So uh, with that, it was it was to go on and, and kind of learn from other people. And that brought me to Calgary, uh, where I've, I've I've been for the last five years. Like Dorian said, I've now been I've been strength and conditioning for eight. I've been out of university worked about three, four months as a, as a kin student or as a, sorry, a kinesiologist, as a physio assistant, which, which is a good start, but, uh, learned that in that industry, you can't really do as, as much to help people and certainly not high performance. Excellent. Um, so today, you know, we've picked sort of two sports, but we can definitely, you know, touch on other things as well. Um, but I'd like to start out with swimming. Now, you've, over the year, have been exposed to, you know, a variety of different swimmers. You've, um, you've worked with several um, over multiple years. And um, how did that happen and what, what, what has it been like? Um, yeah, it's, uh, you're right, Dorian. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of funny having a little chuckle here. Um, I can barely swim. So uh, for me to, to train swimmers, like you've mentioned, uh, you know, two swimmers that, that I've had the privilege to work with uh, actually just came back from Junior Pan Packs in Fiji and uh, a third swimmer is off in Israel right now getting ready for uh, Junior Worlds Open Water. So uh, their swimmers having great success and uh, I'm hopefully playing a small part in that. But like I said, I can I can barely swim. So it's kind of interesting. Um, similar to falling into strength and conditioning, I, I kind of just fell into it. Uh, one of the first athletes I had when I moved to Calgary was a 12-year-old swimmer who at the time nobody probably would have picked to be uh, you know top three in Canada that he is now at 17 years old and uh, hopefully knocking on the door for, for Olympics if not this quadrennial the next one 
And uh, but, you know, with with consistency and we'll probably get into this a bit towards the end, a bit more on that. But with a consistent work ethic, um, any anybody can really can can do anything. Obviously, genetics come into play. But uh, I'm a firm believer that that consistent work ethic and and working hard at the right things instead of just working hard is, is kind of gets some gets you to where you want to be. Um, so with that, you know, he started to get some success and swimmers at his club started to realize that and started to ask questions about what he was doing outside of the club. And uh, now that that leads into, I think it's uh, 13 or 14 swimmers uh, that, that I'm working with, as well as a club down in Okotoks. So it, uh, it's really kind of blossomed. That's awesome. So it's really been a project that um, over the years just has grown more and more, hey? Yeah, it, like I said, it wasn't it wasn't one quick thing, but it was uh, it's a testament to, to to Sebastian that I was working with. Like I said, from twelve years old on, and if it wasn't for him and him doing well and him being and staying with me, um, I probably wouldn't be working with any swimmers right now. Very cool. So I'm sure you're you're obviously you know looking to stay up to date with what else is going on in our industry in terms of strength and conditioning. So when we look at swimming, in your in your opinion, where are we? Um, going in the right direction in the industry and where are we most likely still making mistakes when it comes to training swimmers yeah it's a that's a great question um obviously i can just uh, i'll speak to my experience um like you said i'm trying to keep up with what's going on but there's there's so much that's going on and, and with anything in high level sport people are afraid to kind of share what they're doing to some extent so any knowledge you get I, I take it with a grain of salt. I assume that they're probably doing something slightly different at this point now. Um, so, for example, you can you can see what uh, Caleb Dressel and, and Adam Petey, two of the top swimmers in the world right now, they're doing some great things, in my opinion. Um, they're starting to look at, at swimming as if it's any other sport, meaning they're training themselves like athletes, uh, whereas what I think in the past was happening in swimming, and, and still to some extent in, in certain clubs and with strength and conditioning coaches, is that they're they're thinking that swimmers are their own creatures because they're not on land and they don't deal with gravity and they're in a horizontal position the whole time. So they started to think that they only needed swimming. Um, so so I think where, where the industry is going right now is we're starting to understand that, yeah, they might be a swimmer, but they're still a human. They're still an athlete. Uh, they still need to be able to generate force in their legs. They still need to be able to generate force from their arms. They still need energy systems. So they're not this unique thing that is, is really that much different than, than any other sport. Like Dorian mentioned, we're, you know, I work a lot with lacrosse athletes and I'll have swimmers and lacrosse in the same group and they'll do similar stuff. Uh, cause at the end of the day, they're a similar person where, where it differs is the, the actual sports stuff that they do. So a swimmer is not going to get a stick in their hand in the pool and a lacrosse guy is not going to be in the pool to play lacrosse. Um, so their, their sports coaches are very different, but in terms of getting a hamstring to fire or a glute to fire or a core to stabilize, it's, uh, in my opinion, it's, it's, it's very much the same thing. Um, so I mentioned uh, Adam Peaty and, and Caleb Dressel. I mean, one of the big things with, with Caleb, he's, he's probably one of the best starters in the world right now. And uh, take it for what it is, but the, the rumor is he's got a 41-inch vertical. And, you know, if you're looking at where where his start is, it's, it's all legs. It's power jumping off the blocks, no different than a sprinter coming out of the blocks for 100 meters. Um, and, and the power that you need for that would be no different than a volleyball player getting off to hit, hit a ball or a basketball player to dunk and... Um, similar, if you look at them coming off the walls, where where most of the speed's going to be generated, it's it's technically a vertical jump. Um, even though it's in a horizontal plane, if we look at it in the axis to the world, it's it's perpendicular to the wall that they're pushing. No different than if you're jumping off off the ground, like I said, it don't kind of in basketball. So um, when you when you break it down like that, it's 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 really quite simple. And 
And you see, and I think the top swimmers are getting ridiculous results with nobody being able to beat them simply because they're training like a power speed athlete on land would and, and it's carrying over into the pool. So that's very interesting. Um, would you mind expanding a little bit on that, uh, you know, that idea? Like, let's say you, you know, you start working with a swimmer and um, like, how do you determine sort of the KPIs? So the key performance indicators um, that are sort of, you know, going to dictate where you're going in terms of training them yeah so it's uh it's, it's gonna be very specific um to the individual uh so even though there's like even though there's swimmers um as a whole I, I, the first thing i'm gonna do is look at okay how old are they how specialized are they um the the younger they are the the further they are i guess from you could say like top international competitions whether it be commonwealths olympics worlds whatever um the less i'm going to get specific on on their kpis and, and more broad of just creating a better rounded athlete uh and the reason for that is is it's, it's i guess similar in the industry right now or in sports in general where we talk about early specialization ruining athletes in my opinion, what I've seen is early specialization in a specific sport might ruin the athlete. So at 12 years old, a swimmer might be great at backstroke, but they might become a flyer when they're 18. And at 12, they're not winning Olympic gold medalists. So, you know, and the same, they might be really good. I mean, when I was in grade three, I ran cross country. Now I can't run 2K without without dying. Right. So, so yeah. So if we, if we take that, apply that into other realms and we'll see that in lots of different athletes in different sports, they might be good at something when they're 12, not good at something when they're 18. So, I mean, again, a prime example is, and I'll talk a lot about Sebastian, but not, not because anything other than I've trained with him for so long is, you know, when I first started working with him, he was a flyer. That was what he was best at. Now he only basically strictly swims backstroke. And so if, if I only trained him to be a flyer and only put KPIs around him being a flyer, he might be hundredth in the world at that and never get any better. It's potential to be top five, top 10 medal in the world at backstroke now as a 17 year old. Um, so, so I'm going to look at the swimmer. Uh, I'm going to look at how old they are, all that stuff. Um, the more specialized they get, the more I can specialize my KPIs big one kind of like i talked about vertical we're going to look at that because i'm a firm believer now the more i'll keep learning about swimming and uh, i'm gonna give a little quick plug here to joel greenshields down in indiana doing his phd right now um, because a lot of the, the stuff i've learned in swimming has come from him and bouncing ideas off of him and now with him doing his phd in exercise sciences i can also bounce off the, the strength and conditioning and the science aspect in swimming with somebody who's coaching it doing the science of it and been to the olympics for it um, so in talking to him i learned how much the legs actually generate the speed and that's where the acceleration is going to come from and then the stroke is designed to to hold the speed um so so no different than track and field you got to accelerate before you can hold your top speed um and when you look at a lot of the research and you talk to a lot of the swim coaches when i first started working with it it was you know swimming 70 percent arms and while you might use your arms for a lot of it and save your legs for your final kick 80 to 90 percent of your acceleration is coming from off the wall in your underwater kick which is going to be 90 percent legs or 100 percent legs i mean minus the core and the whip through there so if we look at generating speed at being basically legs well now even though it might only play 30 percent of your race it might be actually in the, in the hindsight and speed generation might be 80 percent wow so yeah this is this is really interesting to me so you mentioned early specialization versus kind of late specialization you believe there is um there is sort of a correlation either like even with um swimmers 
if they're exposed to a variety of different forms of movement, be that on land, um, you know, jumping, sprinting, change of direction, um, it can help just in terms of dexterity and, the, and you know, body awareness, the tools they might have going back into the water. Do you think there is sort of a carryover or a transfer? Yeah, I think so. Personally, absolutely. Um, and I think you're seeing that with, like I said, with the top level swimmers, if you look at them, they're truly athletes now. Um, if you looked at them, they're, they're specimens where in the past, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, swimmers were swimmers. Um, and I, and I joke with the swimmers that I, that I work with that they're, that they don't do a sport and, uh, not that they can't be athletic and, and that just the definition in my mind of a sport to me, they do fitness and they do fitness very well. And don't get me wrong. It's very demanding. Um, and it's, like I said, I'm half joking, but I'm also half serious. And I think because of how I define what a sport is, it's, it's typically your, your ball games, your stick games, team sport. And there's a lot of change of direction, a lot of that, blah, blah, blah. And, and we look at them and we're like, whoa, they're athletic. But where I think what you're getting right now is, is swimmers because, and like I said, the top level ones, you look at a Caleb Dressel with a 41-inch vertical and the guy's a specimen. Um, and I think you put him on a basketball court and he would fit in. He wouldn't look out of place. Um, he wouldn't look like, so to speak, pun intended, I guess, uh, a fish out of water. Um, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, um, so yeah, I think a hundred percent, you need to be well-versed on land. Um, and if you can control your torso, if you can control your lines from tip to toe on land, then you can control it in, in the pool. And if you can generate force on land, you can generate force in the pool. You got to overcome gravity on land. You got to overcome water resistance in the pool. So a hundred percent, I think there's a massive carryover. Um, anecdotally, I'm seeing it, like I said, with some, some great success from, from swimmers in the past, past year to two after working with them for a couple of years. Um, is, is there a ton of research out there proving that? No, absolutely not. Um, but, uh, anecdotally, uh, I would, I would support it. So what would that look like, I guess, the development of, a, of an up-and-coming swimmer that you work with kind of as they become more specialized? Like, how does that kind of influence the training process? Do you go more from very general qualities to very specific? Um, do you still want to have a little bit of a balance? So because a lot of the I'm, – I'm, I'm just making assumptions here, but I'm thinking if you're a swimmer and you end up competing at a pretty high level, um, a lot of your training is going to be very specific. So are you trying to balance that out with some general work? What does that look like? Um, yeah, so I still, you, you always need to keep the general, in my opinion. Um, otherwise, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna break down movements. We're going to break down injuries. Injuries will happen. So I think there's always sort of that general conditioning that needs to be in there. General movements, blah, 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 blah. Um, you're right. I mean, the better you get, the more specialized you need to be. But sometimes being special, like... Sometimes being specialized means not specializing, in, in my opinion. Um, and I, I don't know how to explain that perfectly, but, um, you know, to to be a really good volleyball player, I think you need to be able to do other sports. And I don't use volleyball because that was, that was mine. Right. Uh, as a setter in volleyball, to be really good to understand the tactics of setting and the tactics of volleyball, yes, I had to do volleyball and yes, I had to set and I had to watch volleyball and I had to learn from people that were better than me and all that. But... I also could take a lot having been a baseball catcher and and the mindset that went into being a catcher and being able to set up each specific play and what am I going to do for this pitch to set up for the next pitch so that three pitches from now we can strike this guy out and so that in his fourth at bat in the game he's lined up and he doesn't know what to expect and now I can really exploit his weaknesses so um 
I don't know if that makes sense or not to to you or the listeners, but um, sometimes I, I, it's it's trying to get that step ahead and bringing in other realms. So so when when a backstroker is gonna they're gonna need to specialize. I mean, they're in their back, right? So they're they're gonna need to stabilize in a different way than somebody's on their stomach and their tip to toe. Yeah, absolutely. But they're already doing that in the pool. Right. They've got so many miles in the pool. So I might actually need to revert it and treat them like a freestyler and get them to be able to stabilize when they're on their stomach just to balance that out. So we might have to go outside of the specialization to get back in their specialization, if that makes sense. Uh, and then same, you know, it's it's a big thing, too. Like when you're working with swimmers is, is knowing how they're club trained. So USRPT is a big thing right now. With and So for those of you that don't understand what that is, it's it's more race pace stuff. Um, so in the pool, they're, they're going to do higher quality in terms of their pace and uh, lower mileage. Whereas in the past, it was really high mileage and uh, not as much of, of race pace stuff. And they don't really only get the race pace at races or they'd have, you know, every couple of months they would have a test set. Um, so in the pool, if they're specializing with USRPT in terms of their speed, I might need to be able to, I have to go general and actually do more of the aerobic type stuff on land. Right. Because they get so much of the other one in their actual sport. Yeah. So sometimes the more specialized they are, the, the more general you have to go to, because that's their weakness at that point. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's, it's it's a case by case scenario and it's getting to know the swimmers. Uh, I think we'll get a bit into the science and that going forward here. And, and, but, uh, it's honestly, a lot of it's a feel, it's a feel. It's what I'm seeing. It's, um, sometimes I, I gotta, like I said, I, I think I'm repeating myself here, but sometimes being more specialized isn't the way to go. Yeah. So this is like, to me, this is fascinating because obviously in our industry, you know, there is like, what it seemed like every every month there is a new gadget or a new tool coming out for monitoring rec- either recovery or um, you know performance in some in some form or shape. So um, how does that measure up? Like working with swimmers f- for you um, in contrast to you know the I guess you could call it the soft science, the listening to your athletes, you know, getting to know them, um, you know, l- looking at an individual for what he is, his strengths, his weaknesses all of that stuff um, versus like just looking at hard data. Is there a balance? Are they both, um, you know, valuable, which I'm assuming they are, but you know, to what extent, or is it any different with swimmers? I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's different with swimmers per se. Um, I think where, where it might differ with a swimmer than, than lacrosse or a team sport athlete for that matter is we can truly get ready for a certain thing. Um, so, you know, and, and the higher level they get, and this is maybe going back to the last question, a little bit of the specializing in this and that, and how do we plan stuff and KPIs is um, the, the higher the level they are, the fewer times a year we need them to be able to perform at the top level. Uh, so when you're starting to compete in major competitions, you're peaking two times a year. We can truly get ready and we can measure all year and we can, whether it is with a, a hard data or just kind of perceptive between myself and them, um, we can measure a lot longer and, and get more feedback so that we have a better idea what's going on. Uh, the lower level they are, they got to peak every month for, for a meet. And depending on which 
who's in charge of swimming Canada at the time. We're going to have different structures of when you can hit time trial meets, when you can't, when your times count. Um, and if you're, you know, you're working with international swimmers, which I'm not yet. Um, but, uh, every, every governing body has a different kind of setup when, when the U S hits their, their trials is different than when Canada hits trials. So they're going to peak at different times. Um, so the, uh, that's where I'd say swimmers and, and team sport athletes differ because a team sport athlete, you got to be ready to play a game every week. Right, right, right. Or, or a tournament every month and then two games throughout. Um, and, yeah, you want to get ready for playoffs. Yeah, you want to get ready for the championship game. But if you're not performing every week, you're not going to make it to playoffs and you're not making it to the championship game. So the, the measurement on, on team sport athletes will be, will be slightly different uh, when I look at it. And uh, it might not even, you know, it's, it's going to be more kind of how are you feeling because we need to know how you're going to do tomorrow. Um, we don't have time to really change it. So I might have to listen to them more than, than what I would with a swimmer where, um, you know, they might tell me they're tired, but I might be able to go three days and see are they really tired. Is, are all the numbers showing, hey, you actually are tired? Because we got two and a half, three months to get ready. So if I cook you a little bit extra there in those two days, as long as there's no injury, which is something going into a session, I always remind myself I can do more harm than good in a session. You know, I'm not going to make them Olympic gold medals in one session, but I could end their career. Right. Um, so, so that'd be the difference, but, um, back to your question there, Dorian, about, uh, you know, soft signs, hard signs, I'm going to use all of it. Um, the, the newer, the athlete, the less I can go with kind of my perception because I don't really know them. I don't know. I don't know, you know, what does, I might be seeing it clearly, but I might not know what it actually means for them. Um, so then I'm going to have to rely, rely more on kind of what are they just telling me and you know, what, what is their heart rate showing? The other, like the, the big thing for me is what are they doing in the pool? That's the great thing about track and field athletes and swimmers is they're on the clock every day. And, you know, whether I see them once a week or five times a week, it doesn't matter. They're in the pool nine times a week. Yeah, fair enough. So they, well, they essentially have measurable results day in, day out. Exactly. Which at the end of the day is, is really all that matters. You know, if everything in here is great, but they don't swim faster, I everything in here really isn't great then right like they're they're not a crossfit athlete they're not a power lifter they're not they're not anything else other than a swimmer or lacrosse or whatever what have you um but these individual sports that are timed every day if if they do the same set four times a week well we know are they faster in that set are they are they slower in that set and with with some of the new software and, and devices coming out for swimming now they can measure their gps in the pool and they know every set what what is their split what's their kick what's their acceleration blow and then we can also combine that with what's their perceived exertion what's their heart rate uh and and get some hard evidence there and then combine that with what i'm seeing in here and, and where the the stuff that happens in the gym that i, I have to rely more on my eyes is okay what's their movement like because they might be swimming fast but their movement might be terrible which means they're only swimming fast for a moment and then the injury is going to set in a week from now a month from now three years from now might happen a month before they go to olympics so i'm assuming you're using some of this hard and soft data or information so to speak um to kind of plan your tapers as well uh like just going on i guess you know using um, what happens throughout the training year what kind of elements do you keep in your quote-unquote dry land training in the program and then well as you said as long as you have continuously you know information coming through in forms of times in the pool 
you'll be able to tell like, well, what is this doing? If I put this element in, or you know, if I take this element back out of it, um, is there a measurable effect? Uh, you know, actually with that athlete swimming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Dorian. And the the taper is an interesting thing uh, because you can truly do it. Like I said, because there's you know there's a period to grow, there's a period to, to back off, and then there's getting ready. So we might only have taper two times a year uh, for for the more senior swimmers, or three times a year. Um, so and and that's an interesting thing. And and having better communication with the, their swim coach uh, helps with that as well because then you know what are they doing in the pool. Because you're right, I could give them something here and then measure and say, okay, did it work in the pool? But unless you know what they're doing in the pool, you don't really know because I might have backed off here expecting to get them faster in the pool, but the three sessions before that in the pool, the coach begged them. Now you look at okay, your times were worse. Was it because of what we did in here? Well, so, you need all the information. Yeah, which which I don't think we ever truly get. Um, we can try to get closer to it, but I mean, when you put in like what's going on in their personal life, what's going on in, in society, what's going like, there's so many variables out there. When we look at, we're dealing with people here. These aren't robots. Um, we never truly have all of it, but yeah, the the more data I have, the easier it is to set up a taper that's going to work for them. And everybody's different. Um, so you know, some some of the athletes, I, I got to start a taper two and a half weeks out. Some of them we can start a taper a week out, and then it depends: are we is it a full taper or is it a partial taper? You know, are we just looking for them to hit a qualifying time, and therefore they don't need to actually be at their best, but they just need to be good enough? Or are we looking at them to truly be at their best at that point? So then that depends on what goes under the taper. And, uh, you know, like I said, you got to count the, the, the biggest mistake I've probably made with tapers is that I don't account for the other stuff that's going on. Um, so it, it seems to coincide that all the big swim meets happen at the time of exams. And exams have been shown over and over again, especially if it's midterms, finals, injury risk increases, um, especially with collegiate athletes, right? You see it in field and court sports over and over. There's more research coming out on that uh, because ultimately whatever that stress is, right? Like that could be a physical stress that could be, you know, from, like you said, personal relationships or, um, you know, stuff going on at school. Like it's still stress to the organism and it's going to respond accordingly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So early on and, and even still when I get new, new swimmers, it's, it's trying to figure out, okay, how do they, how do they handle it? Some of them handle exams well, some of them terribly. And uh, with, without fail, majority of swimmers, when they start with me and I talk to them, is most of them get sick on a taper. And that's just been their past history, which leads me to believe that they were overtraining leading into that taper. And, and maybe it's because there's more stresses that came on because you put you know the, the stress of the meet and having to perform and put up a time and hit your qualifying or beat your competitor or what have you. Uh, maybe it's because it is around exams. Maybe it's blah, 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 blah. But if you're getting sick on a taper, did the taper really do what it was supposed to do? So there have been there have been times where I've foregone a taper. We've actually ramped up training to keep them in fight or flight so that the adrenaline's high, everything for performance will be there, and they'll actually swim better than if we had to put the taper in, and then they get sick and their body goes into relaxation, and now they're trying to go to trials sick, which, which I've seen from athletes a lot. Um, and this comes back to, again, what are the measurements going into it? What are the measurements for three months ahead of time? But what is the feedback from the athlete? What am I seeing? What are we seeing in the pool? What are the coaches being able to relay to me in the pool so that we don't get to this point where actually no taper is better than a taper? Uh, so it's, 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 it's the art. It's what I like about this industry, and that's what I really like about individual sport athletes is that you truly can play around with that stuff, and when you get it right, it's awesome. 
when you get it wrong it sucks it's shit but uh you know the the more you do it and the more you get with the with the athletes the the more you you might miss it by five percent um instead of missing it by 85 percent right now have you had athletes um that you know the kinds of athletes that they always want to do a little bit more so now you ask them to do less and you know it's like well it's less volume i'm still feeling fresh i'm good like let's do another one um i guess how do you how do you kind of deal with those types of personalities that they almost want to push too hard for their own good yeah um, it uh i think most high level athletes are like that um i haven't i haven't come across too many athletes that that really are excelling in their sport that need to get pushed to work harder um especially in individual sports it's a different mindset than a team sport athlete uh they they they're they just i'm a stereotype here but they're more driven they're more focused they're they mature quicker a 14 year old swimmer i find is more mature than a 19 year old lacrosse player um just because again the the feedback what what gets measured gets better and if you're trying to get better you you inherently have to mature or you quit it's one of the two if you stick around and and i mean if you're in the pool nine days a week or not nine days a week but nine sessions a week for an hour and a half two hours plus your team's dry land for two hours plus coming to see me two three times a week you're mature you still got school you're mature i'm sorry you, you figured yeah. out life yeah. you figure yeah. out how to balance things um so how do i deal with that because that's almost everybody especially in the swimming world that's doing well um if they're if they're not doing well they're probably not that person um is is trying to sit them down as we're getting to know them push their buttons and this and that but sometimes so last year one of the swimmers he his coach decided to put in an extra session four weeks out from trials in the pool on a friday afternoon which is typically when he came here um he didn't want to get rid of his session with me well in my mind, you've just added an hour and a half in the pool. We've got to pull out some volume somewhere else, especially four weeks out when we're basically getting ready to start a taper. Adding in an hour and a half of training on a taper didn't, doesn't make sense to me. But he's, he's he sees value in what we do in here. He, he understands how it helps him, so he didn't want to get rid of this. He found, he finds when he gets rid of this, he loses his power in his legs. And like we've talked about, that's that's the majority of his swimming. Um so I had to balance out. If I had told him not to come in here, I thought it was going to be more detrimental because of he didn't think that it was it was going to help him. He thought he was losing. You know, the, the conversation we had led me to believe that he didn't have faith in his swimming if he didn't have that Friday session in here. My mind, doing extra volume wasn't the way to go. So I agreed to let him come in so that psychologically he thought he was getting what he needed. He was happy, all of that. But what we did was I scaled back on what we did in the other sessions more so he was in here three times a week so the other two sessions we'd scale back more than what i would have if he hadn't been in the pool and that third session when he came in we hardly did anything on that friday afternoon but in his mind he was getting what he needed because he was here so sometimes you gotta trick them uh, this is where us knowing more about strength and conditioning than them is it comes in handy just being in here might not be the bad thing it's what do you do when they're in here um and now if that doesn't work, if that doesn't trick them and they realize that, hey, they're not going hard, they're not doing it, um, that, that's where, you know, sometimes if it's not a major thing, I've let, I've let athletes, yeah, let's do what you want. And then let them perform poorly. And then, okay, now you're ready to let me do my job again. Right. right? Sometimes it takes a little bit of extra convincing to be like, no, actually, like I, I'm the expert um, when it comes to 
your dryland training. So maybe, you know, we should co- co- cooperate instead of you kind of dictating the whole thing. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's a partnership. Like you said, cooperate. The way I look at it, it's a partnership. Um, I don't dictate to them, um, but I do let them know that I know more than them. Uh, and if I don't, then please don't train with me. Find somebody else. Right. You know, and the same conversation with parents, because a lot of times when you're dealing with swim swimmers, the parents want to get involved a lot. And they, especially if they swam in the past, they think they know, which is great. And they might know. But uh, if you know more than me, please don't pay me. Please don't come here. Because then I'm not doing my job. And if you don't more, know more than me, then please let me do my job. And I have no problem sitting down and talking to parents. I have no problem sitting down. We're going to talk to the athletes as much as possible. I, I'm, I'm a firm believer if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, you won't put full effort into it. So if if the athletes don't understand why they're not doing less or why they're doing more or why they're doing this exercise or whatever, then they're probably not putting full effort into it. And they're rebelling against it slightly, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. So we need to sit down. If we need to sit down and talk for four hours about why I don't want you to do more, then we'll sit down for four hours and talk about why I don't want you to do more. And at the end of the day, I think all the athletes that I work with understand that I want them to do as well as possible. So because of that, I'm not going to specifically sabotage them by saying, hey, let's do less. I, th- I know this will make you worse, but let's do less. And once they understand that I truly care about their their best results in their sport. They're going to listen. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or it'll be easier for them to listen. And they might not 100% agree with it, but then when they go out and they have a good meet, it's a little bit more faith that's built, a little bit more trust. And now when, when you know, going on five years with, with Sebastian and a couple other ones I've had for three or four years, and then, you know, the trust is pretty high at this point. You know, you've, you've, you've gone through hardships, you've gone through this, you've gone through that, and you performed well. There's a lot more trust. Now, if you've only gone through one taper with me and it wasn't the best meet you've ever had, yeah, you're not going to trust. I don't expect you to trust me with everything. And it's, it's up to me to earn the trust from getting the results for them, especially if they do things that I want them to do that they don't necessarily agree with 100%. But it's also, if, as a coach, you got to listen to them a bit. They know their sport. They know their body. They know, you know, if somebody tells me it takes three weeks for them to taper and I've never tapered them, well, I'm going to listen to them especially if they're older than 14 or 15 years old and they've got some decent results, why wouldn't I listen to them? They know way more about them than I do. And until I get to understand more about their taper than they do, well, I got to listen to them. Otherwise, I'd be an idiot not to. So, th- Yeah, this is interesting. Um, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, when, whenever you have those conversations with swimmers as opposed to, let's say, lacrosse players, like knowing your body, knowing like what to report, how to report properly, I'm assuming there's probably a little bit of a difference between those two. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like, this goes back to the maturity thing. Um, swimmers understand their body way better. Um, they understand, and because they're, on, and it's it's not it's, it's not a knock on team sport athletes. It's just the nature of the sport. When you don't have a measurable feedback every single day, you will get confused. You know, the cross player might think he had a great practice, but that's because everybody else had a shit practice. So you scored four goals and you're moving faster. And you know, I've had some lacrosse guys after training here in off season, they go to a training camp and they get back with the team, and they're like, "Yeah, I was the fastest guy there," but I think everybody else is slow. Right, right. So unless there's so like, and and they're smart enough at that point to be like, okay, yeah, I have been getting faster because I'm training in the off season. The on the clock shows that I'm getting faster, but I probably shouldn't still be the fastest guy on the team because I'm seventy pounds heavier and I'm a defenseman. So they they get to understand to be smarter. Whereas in swimming, it's like if you're passing the person beside you, but your t- your time on your on your tightron says that you're going four tenths slower than when, what you should be. 
well, you understand you're going four tenths slower than you should be. So the, the swimmers can give better feedback to me because they're getting better feedback. Uh, and because of that, they have to pay attention to their body more. Um, so yeah, definitely. And, and like I said, I mean, I'll get better feedback from a 14 year old swimmer than I would a 22 year old professional lacrosse player. hundred percent. Gotcha. So, um, I'm curious, uh, over the years, like what have you come to, um, you know, observe in terms of injury patterns, um, with swimmers, um, what seem to be like the problem areas you come across or um, is it chronic overuse, like in the shoulders, hips, like what are, what are some of those things that keep coming up over and over? Yeah. So it, uh, it, it's very stroke dependent, I would say, um, you know, freestylers is probably gonna be their shoulders. Um, you know, flyers is probably gonna be their backs. Breaststrokers is going to be their knees. Um, if we're going to stereotype it across the board for swimmers, uh, a back is a common one, I would say. Um, and, and for the most part, it's going to come down to probably just the movement patterns of, of how they stabilize in coordination. Um, so when you're trying to kick, if you don't know how to kick from glutes and hamstrings, you're going to use your back to pull into it. And, and every stroke is going to have some kick. They're going to have some underwater whip. They're going to have dolphin. They're going to have, you name it. They're going to have to, they're going to have to use their legs. And same with coming off the wall. Uh, you'll see it in a vertical jump. You know, there's people that they, they can push for their vertical jump and there's people that can pull for the vertical jump. And if you're, if you're leading with your back to pull for your vertical jump, well, when you come off the wall, you're going to pull off the wall. And if you're pulling off the wall, your back is going to be overused in a, in a means that it's not designed for. Um, so, so I'd say across the board, it'd be, it'd be back, but I'd say for, you know, probably every sport, it, there's a good chance you're going to have some tightness in the back because of poor movement patterns. So essentially you're saying the re like, um, one of the, one of the reasons in your mind, um, sequencing of their movement might not be proximal to distal. There is somewhat of a discrepancy. So the energy like doesn't flow through the body as it should. And that's causing issue on a muscular level or musculoskeletal level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's that's what I've been seeing. Um, and uh, again, there's no, I haven't come across, I haven't dug deep into it either, though the scientific evidence behind this. But uh, it seems to be the the case. And you know, and when they're on land, when they're in here, the back's fine. And then they say, oh, "You, but it hurts when I'm in the pool, and it hurts when I do kick." If we're talking about a back. Um, okay so why is that and then i look at their footage and they can't stabilize their core like you say proximal distally they can't stabilize the back's trying to move the back's trying to move when the legs are trying to move but the back's trying to move the legs they're in a lordotic position but yet then they're also in an anterior tilt of their pelvis so that there's more hydrodynamics so you get all these weird things going on that in the pool and then you and then you couple that with and that might be fine for 40 minutes you couple that with a two-hour practice go sit at your desk at high school all day come back and do another hour and a half practice well they were fried their, their sequencing was done in the first half hour right they had nothing left and now you're so so 10 percent of the day they they had the strength to do what you wanted them to do in the pool it's not this isn't that the coaches don't know what they want in some cases it might be, but I, I don't think in majority of the cases that the swim coaches don't understand. Same with the shoulder issues, right? They have, there's no scapular stability in there. So, so they're trying to get their elbow up high. And, and if any of my stroke mechanics are off right now, forgive me. Like I said, I don't swim, but I'm around a lot right now. But they're trying to get the elbow high, but then, then I watch them in here and they try to lift their elbow and it's using their traps. 
well, yeah, no wonder they're going to end up in, with shoulder issues. No wonder they have a tight neck. No wonder they end up with headaches. No wonder, uh, and, and, and you might be able to fix that in the pool for the first five minutes or 10 minutes, mm. but if they don't have the scapular stability, if they don't have the strength, they're not going to hold it for a two-hour practice. There is an inherent, almost like structural weakness that doesn't allow them to attain those positions that they really want to be in. Yeah, I, I, it's, and I think you see this across the board in most sports. It's not that coaches don't understand where they want the athletes. It's not that the athletes don't understand how to get there. It's physically they can't do it. So I'm curious, like in your time, whenever you know swimmers come to see you um, to do their quote unquote dry land training, um, what are I guess some of the some of the staples, some of the big the big rocks that you look for that maybe movements that you like to use um, in training um, to get the desired results in the pool? Yeah, it's going to be it. Uh, you know, foundationally squat, bench, deadlift, row, run, jump. Um, simply put, uh, and then uh, you know we'll, we'll vary up what what type, what depth, what weight. For the most part, we're looking to build strength, uh, and then this is uh, this, this is kind of one of the, the flaws in the swimming industry and strength and conditioning, still currently, but also in the past was they're an endurance sport. Um, and, uh, I say that in terms of what most people think, and then therefore they think let's do endurance weight training. And this is the general versus specific is yeah, but their weakness is strength just because they have to be in the pool for, let's say a 200 back. They need to be in the pool for a minute 57 to hit a FINA a standard. Doesn't mean we need them doing squats for a minute 57. Yeah. <laughs> right? right. 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 Or, or so, so why, why do 12 reps of a squat or 15 reps of a squat? Why, why do 35 push ups? Why do, and there'll be times that, yeah, sure. Maybe you need to do that. But majority of programs that I see, this is what they're still doing. So you're just replicating what they're already good at essentially, which is endurance, um, which isn't get if we look at this as from a truly scientific standpoint we look at let's go to chemistry what's the limiting reagent the limiting reagent is strength for most of them it's physical strength and, and if you take it to the track world and we look at speed reserve you know if you need to hit a 25 second split on a 200 meter but you can physically only go 25 seconds for 50 meters well you're not holding that for a 200 i'm sorry it's not happening because your maximum speed is nowhere near where it needs to be yeah exactly so so you might have to be able to swim a 20 second 50 to be able to swim 25 second splits for your 200 right so and in order makes sense so ultimately what he's saying is it's kind of similar to you know track and field when you or i guess even field field and court sports right like if you have an athlete where their absolute top speed that they might reach let's say in a rugby game or a lacrosse game might be i don't know nine and a half meters a second versus somebody else their top speed is um yeah, i don't know seven and a half meters a second now you have those two athletes um let's say both of them or well just in order to stay in the game if they are competing against one another the faster athlete is gonna use much less of their kind of full capacity like a lesser percentage and probably is going to cost them less energy as well absolutely absolutely yeah yeah so then so when i look at that you're, you're spot on dorian so when i look at that it's like okay so if i need them to be able to physically go faster what's the limiting reagent in that it's speed and power so, right so primarily why why work on energy system why work on high repetition why work on this if they physically you know before we could run a four minute mile nobody was running four minute mile splits <laughs> 
Like you physically need to be able to run that pace, let's say for a minute. And if you can't run that pace for a minute, then no way you're holding on for four minutes. Forget it, right? And yeah. that was our issue that with, with the four-minute mile. So it's so the, the movements that I'll use in here are, found, I would say, foundational, in my opinion, to any sport because it's a person. Um, the, the, the basis will be let's get them strong. So we can, we can get them, if they need to be able to lift their elbow against the resistance of water, well, they need to be some level of strength to be able to do that. Now, if they need to be able to hold it in that position for two minutes – they need a ridiculous amount of strength. And now if they need to hold it in that position for two minutes while exploding through the water and propelling their their body and stabilizing their body and blah, 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 it's ridiculous what they need to be able to do. So that's where, that's where I'm going to come from in here is not, not what's the bare minimum that you need. What do you need to be able to do this for two hours, nine hours a week? Or sorry, nine sessions a week. Without breaking down. Without breaking down. Which means you might need to be 20 times stronger than you physically need to be. You might need to have 30% more energy ability than what you physically need to do. And the reason why that's lower is because they're not going at full capacity in the pool. Mm-hmm. Where, But the strength is getting taxed every time to hold that position, to hold the core stability. And this is where the, the repetitive overuse injuries come in. It's not really that you're overusing. It's just you're compensating because the strength's not there. So then, you know, as soon as, if you have enough scap stability for five minutes to use your, your lats and rhomboids and traps and everything else that you need to use for five minutes well the other 95 minutes of your practice you're using your rotator cuff and now it's not designed to be able to hold all that force mm-hmm. for that period of time and you go to that because our body's designed for path of least resistance and and that's when the overuse injuries come in that's when it's not very rarely is it going to be you jump off the blocks and you end up with an injury and if you do it's probably when you jump off the blocks at the end of the, at the end of the practice when everything's fatigued and now you end up with the injury because it's the straw that broke the camel's back that's fascinating and i think it's a really good point now just wrapping up with the um with the with the swimmers um do you have any advice for i guess younger up-and-coming swimmers that want to eventually compete at a higher level um you know as far as their dry land training goes yeah um i would Find somebody good. <laughs> um, <laughs> find somebody that you trust. At the end of the day, if you don't trust the person that you're with, uh, it, it's not a good fit. Whether whether they're really good or really bad doesn't matter if you don't trust them. Um, and then be consistent and and understand it. Uh, you might get worse before you get better. Uh, this is something I struggled with at the beginning with with swimmers was because it's very much a, a skill set and it's uh, it's a feel. And if you get stronger, your feel is going to change. Um, so your stroke might, you might, uh, there's a lot of swimmers that I was having there. They're telling me, you know, I feel better. I feel stronger, blah, 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 but I'm just, I'm just not going faster. And I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm slipping water. And then I got a better idea what they're talking about is, well, their, their stroke was off a bit because they were trying to pull more water. They, they're getting their arms through faster. And so they're, they lost their feel, which is why you do have to spend a decent amount of time in the pool is because you need a feel of the water and you know, the higher level they are, they'll take two days off on a weekend. They'll tell me they come back on a Monday and they've lost their feel. Um, so I would say whatever it is, whatever you find, be consistent with it and give it some time. Um, I truly don't see great results with swimmers. Uh, and I'll use great loosely for about a year. Um, the first year is, is kind of foundational. If, if swimmers start with me here kind of in August, I don't expect them to really take more time off than what they had before at meets until, you know, summer season comes around in July. So we're about a full year before it truly, it starts to show, oh, this might be doing something different than what you before, because there's so many things that 
we had to rewire. There's so many different, you know, we got to tear the house down and build the foundation a little bit better. You've got to get used to your stroke with the new speed and power that you've developed. Um, so, so be consistent, give it a bit of time. And now if you're getting injured right away, yeah, don't give it time. <laughs> but right now, I think that the last point you just made there, um, makes complete sense to me, but it's also, really important for coaches at that point to communicate like hey this is going to be a process like just because you st you've trained with me for two months doesn't mean like you're gonna blow all your times out the water um you know that could you know like every individual obviously is gonna adapt at a different rate it's gonna be you know has has a different um way to respond to the kind of stimulus stimulus you expose them to yeah yeah absolutely and and uh because of that i wouldn't i also wouldn't try so if you're a young swimmer you got time to play around with it a bit um if you're an older swimmer and you're looking to switch and you're doing something else just be mindful of when you're doing it and be mindful of what the conditioning coach is trying to do you know if a high level swimmer came to me three months out from a major international competition i'm not doing a lot because again i might make them worse so so i'm going to look at i'm not probably going to change movement patterns i'm probably just going to make them more explosive in what they're already doing and not a lot more explosive because that again will change their stroke in the water a little bit so the easiest thing you could do in a short time is just get their energy systems better now if you're a young athlete like you're saying dorian i mean you should be working a little bit of everything you know go out do a different sport make sure you ride your bike run because if you're efficient in the water and you're trying to use that for your conditioning as well you're efficient you know an olympic level marathon runner isn't going to get much aerobic benefit from running a marathon because they're really freaking good at it yeah Now put them in a pool, and if they can barely swim, they got to fight for their life. And guess what? Their lungs and heart have to work way harder because the muscles aren't efficient in that. They're, they're, the movement's not. So as a young as a young swimmer, vary it. Find you know do almost gymnastic type training. Like I said, run, jump, lift weight, but but start young. You know I, the 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 swimmers that I've got now started when they were 12 and 13 and 14 they're doing the best some of them have come on since then and we've made some big changes because they started to understand hey I need to do something different but you know it, if you can have a foundation from 12 to 13 or 12 to 14 late that's going to last you for the next 12 years of your swim career why not do it then and because swimmers are more mature mentally than most other team sport athletes start young Start young, find somebody, and be consistent. You know, I just posted an article today on, on Instagram called The Mandanity of Excellence, and it was done on swimming. And excellence is mundane. Don't, don't try to find this fancy thing. Find somebody who you believe knows what they're doing or has a track record of doing the right thing and stick with them. And stick with them and stick with them and stick with them. And if you're getting results year after year after year after year, that's what this whole thing's about. You're not going to shave 20 seconds off in the first month. And if you do, it's because you weren't that good right like michael phelps didn't take off a lot of time because he was really freaking good but right. a little bit of time made a big difference at that point you know a tenth of a second at the olympics is a lot different than a tenth of a second when you're 12 but if you're taking off every meet you go to you're taking off a second or two seconds or three seconds when you're depending on your distance and when you're 12 13 14 that's gonna add up a lot when you're 18 you're looking to go to you know junior olympics and things like that or possibly if you're really good looking to make the olympics at 16 17 18 just find it be consistent commit to it and see where it'll take you oh, i think that's great advice so why don't we switch gears a little bit um and talk about lacrosse so just recently in calgary the uh, minto cup wrapped up um you've obviously watched a whole bunch of games uh 
what are some of the conclusions conclusions you drew from watching some of these athletes um, that correct me if I'm wrong, but they came from kind of all over all, all over the country. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, where do you see lacrosse evolving? You know. Like over the over the last couple of years and going forwards, are there good things? Are there bad things happening? Yeah, it, uh, you're right. This is uh, mental just wrapped up, and along co- coinciding with that was uh, U19 girls um, nationals fields as well. Which unfortunately I didn't get to any games, but we also and there was also um, the midget boys box lacrosse nationals at the same time. So there was lots of lacrosse going on in Calgary, which was awesome. Like you say, all from across Canada. Um, the the midget boys they won they won gold for two years in a row now last year was the first year ever that they'd won and then they they defended this year so from that standpoint there's good things happening in uh, Alberta for lacrosse Alberta's typically been looked at as a second tier province you know it's Ontario and BC when we're looking at box lacrosse it's been Ontario BC and then there's kind of these people that just want to play the game you know that younger brother so to speak that uh, wants to hang out with his older brother and his buddies and uh, there hasn't been that respect sort of for Alberta lacrosse Um, so it's good to see coming up that, that it's that it's maybe starting to get there having said that um the, the the minto cup which is junior a which is essentially the highest amateur um level before you go into the nll draft or, or senior a which which has quite a bit of money in it as well um alberta did not show well they uh they got embarrassed uh, against ontario and bc and um it uh, was a step backwards sort of for Alberta lacrosse in that sense from the last two years where where they kind of performed well at, at nationals. And we don't need to really get in details as to why. I don't think in terms of, you know, age people growing and aging out and things like that and, and what have you. But what it, what it did show to me was the biggest thing I took away was the level that you compete at really pushes you further to compete at a higher level. And what I mean by that is the depth in Ontario and BC is so much more than there is in, in Alberta that these kids are playing with more competition all the way through. Kiwi, Bantam, Midget, Junior B, Junior A, and BC Intermediate. Um, so when you get to to the pinnacle, which is the Minto Cup, you've been playing at this level for the last eight years. It's nothing new. It's just It's just what you do. Your practices because of that are better because you've had more competition in your games. You, as your practices become better, you become better. The teams become better. Uh, your games become better. Then you have to practice. So it's cyclical and it's this compounding effect. Whereas because lacrosse in Alberta hasn't been that great, uh, you know, you maybe had a couple good years and you have some phenomenal players, but as a whole, we're just not at the same level you know iron sharpens iron and right now we don't have sharp iron sharpening iron right right yeah, all right yeah, so yeah. so what i take from that is back to my training is like okay i need competition you know when there's people in the in the weight room seeing a guy lift 50 more pounds than you is probably going to help seeing a girl who runs further than you or faster than you and jumps further is going to help and and then you getting better is going to help them get better and this can perpetuate and and uh, you know we were talking a little bit before this about selfishly doing things and some people think that's a bad thing. I don't. I think it's a great thing. If I selfishly want my competition to be better so I can be better, well, that's going to make me better, which will in turn make them better. Mm-hmm. You know, if I selfishly want to be the best person on my team and then I'm going to call out the other guys on my team for not working hard, it's selfish that I want them to work hard because now I need to work hard. But guess what? In the meantime, it made them better. Everybody so, gets better. Everybody gets better. And so, the thing what you're touching on there is really um, – is is something really important um, that, you know, you see it in our industry. There's more and more conditioning coaches now that 
you know, you hear the talk about culture and um, developing sort of yeah like like a an atmosphere within within a training session where there's multiple athletes going after it same you know at the same time might even be playing the same sport maybe not but you know fostering an environment where you have a certain degree of you know like going after it yeah yeah you're absolutely right Dorian. it's uh it it, it speaks volumes and it pushes everybody to get better. It makes it more fun, especially when you're dealing with high achievers. High achievers don't like to lose, but they kind of do because then there's something to strive for. And then when you win, it makes it that much better. If you're always winning, it's like, yeah, it's great. But if you know that this person should beat you and you beat them, it's amazing. Right. Uh, if, you, if you're the best person in the room, find a better room. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I always, I always just say I wanted to be the worst player on my volleyball team because I knew I was pretty damn good. Not in, a co- not in a cocky way, but I was, I was pretty good. And if I was the worst one, we were going to be a really good team. And then I was going to get better. And I always wanted that. I never wanted to be the best on the team. Because um, if I was the best on the team, well, I didn't know how good everybody else was going to be. They might have been shit. Maybe they don't care. Maybe they're not working hard. Um, so, yeah, that's the biggest. My biggest takeaway is, is exactly what you said there is the culture. The, 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 but the culture breeds like the, the culture was it, it is lacrosse um like it, it is like a religion i mean a lot of the natives they're born with a stick in their cradle they play for the creator it's a different thing here we're playing lacrosse there they're doing life and it just happens to be lacrosse gotcha yeah. right and it's a different culture and that different culture breeds different competition which breeds better competition which breeds better players and and it just it just perpetuates. That was my biggest, honestly, my biggest takeaway. Um, and having said that, the sport is just evolving. You know, seeing guys do things in junior A that I hadn't seen in the past couple of years at, at, at Minto. Um, they're doing things that the professionals are doing uh, in terms of athleticism, but also in terms of creativity. Their sport IQ is going up. And again, this is just, um, I think a big part of it is social media. Um, and if you followed mental, the social media wasn't great. There was a lot of crap that went on this year um, that the that the CLA and and referees association have to sort out themselves. Um, but even with that bad publicity, there's probably more people that know about lacrosse now, and there's more people that maybe went down a rabbit hole and they're like, oh, this is what lacrosse is. And now they're watching YouTube videos, and there might be an eight year old who learned about lacrosse because. There was crap that happened at Minto this year, and therefore it made barstool sports and and what have you, and you know, and, and people are talking about it. And then you see that with with these kids, they you know they'll watch their heroes on YouTube do something and they go try it. Before you didn't do that. You Super know, accessible right now. It's crazy. It's crazy. And then it's the same thing in the strength and conditioning world. Everything's out there. Maybe not everything. Like I said at the beginning, I mean, there's a lot of things that people aren't putting out there because they're afraid of somebody stealing it. But just because you know what somebody's doing doesn't mean you know how to apply it. Um, or you don't know how to, maybe it doesn't apply to your athlete in that specific situation. So, yeah, the biggest takeaway from the Minto being here was just that A, Alberta needs to step up and we need more competition to get better. Um, but we also need to change our culture because we can create that competition within ourselves if we help each other and if everybody helps each other because it's just not, it's not as big as it is out, out east and out west. Um, and it, it may never be, but because the population is not quite as big, but we can certainly get it better than what it was so that you're not getting embarrassed. And on the years when you have a really good crop of kids coming through, hey, you might be able to have a national championship coming out of Alberta for the first time ever. Uh, you know, there's been nobody from Calgary, Edmonton, Red Deer that's won a national championship at Junior A, but nobody ran the four-minute mile until they ran the four-minute mile. True. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And 
also kind of along those lines i mean in you know traditional strength strength and conditioning programs these days uh what would you say especially for lacrosse players what might be some elements that people tend to miss yeah i think like lacrosse is another inch it's kind of like swimming one of my buddies played lacrosse again i didn't play one of my buddies played growing up and uh we was talking about him because he was assistant coach at uh, queen's university for a little bit and talking about training when i was back home in kingston and he's like you know he was an offensive player and he's like we just need a stick in our hand we don't really need we don't really need to be athletic they're kind of like swimmers in a sense where they're like skill 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 mm-hmm. and i kind of i look at that kind of how hockey used to be probably when it first started and you could get away with being able to skate and have really good stick handling and shooting and you didn't have to be the fittest guy you could go out and smoke your cigarette between periods and you know like and <laughs> like it, it happened back like in let's say in the 60s like you know you could you could have a glass of scotch between periods you could you could be an alcoholic and you could get away with your skill but as there's more money involved in it and as it becomes more professional skill itself isn't good enough and this is what you're seeing, like what I was saying with swimming. Now you need the athleticism. Now you need the other stuff. So with lacrosse, I think because it was such a, you know, it was it's an it's a native sport um, that you had the stick in your hand and you learn how to cradle and you learn how to run with it. You learn how to shoot and you understand stick skills. Um, and that was good enough. But as more people are watching it, as there hopefully will become more money involved in the professional ranks of the NLL as teams expand into the U.S. and they're going through their expansion right now and it, as it becomes more professional instead of just being professional because it didn't get treated professionally uh people are realizing that you also have to be able to run fast now you also have to be strong to knock a guy down or not get knocked down you also need to work on your footwork so you can get around a guy and you can swim better and you can dodge better and it, it so the biggest thing i think that got missed in strength and conditioning for lacrosse is there wasn't strength and conditioning for lacrosse yeah fair enough <laughs> right yeah. um and now it's 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 there um but again there's uh, i can speak more to what's being done in field across just because there's there's 12 guys down in the states right now that, that i that i work with here that are down there on scholarship so i get to see their programs that come back now field across and box across are slightly different in terms of demands um but the biggest thing i see with what's going on in the field across because i can speak more of the programs in that than i can in in actual box lacrosse because nobody's really talking about it for that much um is that they're still treating them like bodybuilders when they do their weights. And so it's it's a lot of hypertrophy work, a lot of split body routines, you know, multiple sets, high reps, lower weight, compound circuit type stuff, not really focusing on anything. Let's just kind of do stuff. And then when they get in season, they don't lift. Now I'm, oh, there's no in-season lifting in place for most programs? For most programs, yeah. There's uh, there's a lot of running. They do a lot more running. Mm. But again, and, and I don't fault them. If I was going to beat a guy up in the weight room and make him slow, I don't want him doing that during the season when they're playing games. <laughs> right? So when you look at what they're doing in the weight room, it doesn't taking it out is probably the best thing. But then what happens is guys, and, and, and this isn't all programs. There's, I mean, there's going to be great people in it in 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 lacrosse and in the u.s and ncaa and um but for the majority of what i'm seeing that's coming back to me athletes come back slower athletes come back heavier athletes come back weaker so they're not lifting as much athletes don't jump as far and most of them come back with nagging injuries whether it be a back a hip a shoulder concussion (laughs) 
what have you. And so they're just not getting the care. And again, they don't have the strength. So don't have the strength to run. They don't have the strength to take the hit. They don't have the pure strength to do what they need to do for the amount of time that they need to do it. Um, so the biggest thing that's being missed, I think in lacrosse is treating them like, like treat them like a basketball player. If we're looking at, um, box lacrosse, very similar, run fast, cut quick lateral movements, some forward movements, but you got to get around the guy before you can go forward. There's going to be some side to side. You got to backpedal a little bit, not a lot. Get off the floor, which you don't do in basketball, but get off the floor as fast as you can, which would be no different than a fast break in basketball. Yeah. You know, the difference in a fast break in basketball versus a transition in lacrosse is transition in lacrosse might be you're transitioning to the bench and getting off versus transitioning down the floor to stop a fast break or to get a slam dunk or an alley oop or whatever. Gotcha. But it, let's look at what basketball is doing. And if we want to if we want to compare it to something, treat lacrosse like that. But at the end of the day, let's treat these guys like an individual. What's your position? Are you sta- are you a big, tough defenseman who needs to knock guys on their ass? Well, you need something different than the guy who's a transition defenseman who's got to be able to get up and down the floor really quick and get off the floor and have some stick skills. Or are you a pure offensive guy who needs a lot of stick skills? But guess what? If you're at the highest level, you're running six guys on offense now, maybe seven. So you're playing every offensive shift. What's well, a 30-second shot clock? And at the higher levels, Ontario, BC, they're playing with more pace. Mm-hmm. You need energy systems. You need energy systems. But you don't just need energy systems. You also got to be able to be explosive. Because mm-hmm. that guy, if he's by you in one second, he, I mean, he's, he's shooting a crippler. Like, he's getting six inches and he's past you, and now your goalie's hung out to dry. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't – there's not one thing that's being missed, I don't think. It's, it's kind of as a whole we're just – I don't think lacrosse is treating it. Lacrosse is hurting itself by not treating itself professionally, which is why at the professional levels they're not making as much money as they could be. And I think you need to start grassroots and think about, hey, what would I do if I was a hockey player right now trying to get signed to a million dollars? Yeah. Now, how would I train? Not, I'm a lacrosse guy who's trying to get signed ten thousand dollars. A little different conversation you're having with yourself. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Especially in North America. Every 12-year-old's trying to make the NHL. But at 19 and 20, and you got two weeks leading into your combine for the NLL, you're fine to go to the cottage for a long weekend. Yeah, it's priorities, hey? How serious are you? I think that's the, I think that's the biggest thing is the strength and conditioning coaches need to look at it a bit more seriously, and, and the athletes need to look at it more seriously. And and unfortunately until it becomes truly professional in terms of making a lot of money people won't treat it that way but it won't become truly professional until people start in my opinion until people start treating it that way because now you got a better product it's easier to market it and so on um just backtrack a little bit uh you mentioned social media earlier we're obviously in the age of everything's on instagram i mean people are having debates on twitter and you know there is every drill you can imagine um and i'm sure athletes have come up to you and showed you like oh look at this can we do this you know um is this good so like um in your in in your mind how um how important especially for your kind of change of direction field court sport athletes is um an element of perception action coupling so for you know if we talk about true agility there's usually um something that happens player has to react to and then perform like a jump a cut uh, whatever a subsequent action afterwards right 
Um, is that something that you, in your in your mind, um, is kind of more up to the uh, to the uh, to the skills coach or the sports coach in that in, in that particular case, or are you trying to cover your bases and touch on some of that if you're if you believe that that might be a KPI that's really relevant for that athlete? Yeah, I think you nailed it there at the, at the end there, Dorian. Is what do they need? What do they need? If if that's the biggest thing that's lacking, if if they if they don't know how to read react if they don't know how to maybe they know how to read but then when they react they don't have the athleticism or the movement patterns to do it or they make poor decisions or they make poor decisions um is it something that i can help them with and if it's something where they like like some of the guys i think need to watch more film right so it's it's not necessarily they have the speed they have the movement pattern they they can react but they don't know how to read the pattern of the sport. So I can't mimic the sport. I can't replicate a guy passing a ball behind his back to another guy on offense so that you know how to slide on defense while you're trying to find the other guy who's, who's coming in. I mean, I, I'm not a lacrosse coach. I'm not, I didn't play lacrosse. I, I can't replicate that specific thing. Yes. So watching film to pick up on that pattern and then getting into a practice is going to help with that. What I can do is work on, because I don't think there's much about reaction as much as about reading. So the read and react, I think, I think there's read is more important than react. And and I mean you, you'll see that like it's all to me it's all pattern recognition. Um, I mean you look at baseball, the science is done. You can't react to the fastball. You, it's too fast. It's too fast. And most things in sport are too fast. So you need to look at Tony Dungy talked about it in one of the books that I read of his about how how he got the the Colts ready and 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 basically everything was autopilot and if they saw a guy's knuckle go a little bit more white then they knew that he had a little bit more weight on it which means he was probably coming forward and it was going to be a blitz little things like that and now you know the blitz is coming before it's coming you picked up on patterns right and the more patterns we can pick up on the more we can read the less we actually have to react we still react we still move in terms of that so almost becomes instinctual at that point exactly and that's and that's what we need sport to get to i mean if you look at the four stages of learning all right you're either in uh, unconsciously incompetent meaning you don't know what you don't know you become consciously incompetent meaning you know that you don't know and then you become consciously competent meaning you know but you have to think about it and then you're unconsciously competent where you just you just do it and that's movement literacy as well that's anything like first you don't know that you don't know how to run then you know that you don't know how to run then you know how to run but you really have to think about it and then you don't have to think about it and you run properly cutting's the same agility is all of that so i can help with making the movement pattern of the change of direction unconsciously competent and for a lot of guys in box lacrosse what i'm noticing is they can only because and there's a knock on canadians when they go and play field is they can only use one hand i mean because box is very much you know you use use your outside outside so if or sorry you're inside so if you're if you're a lefty you stand on the right side of the floor and then you only shoot with your left hand now because of that you don't really want to go down low because you're going to get upside and you can't really shoot so because of that you only learn how to kind of cut one way and spin one way mm-hmm. which makes you a little bit one-dimensional because now the defense knows you can only go that way so the biggest thing i notice is that yeah these guys could watch film and they might see hey this is open but they don't have the movement pattern to get to that other side and this is where i would break it down and we'd go over a little bit and break because in a game in a practice you want to do stuff at pace I can't teach you how to, okay, now you got to put this foot here, plant this way, load through this hip and spin. Right. So do you tend to like break it down with, um, with some of your, um, kind of whole part whole, like, you know, 
do 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 a specific movement, go a little bit into detail, and then see if you can you know put it together at the end again. Is that uh, sort of thing? absolutely absolutely? I think you have to because it goes back to the fourth stage of learning. Is if they don't know that they don't know how to spin that way, well, they can't work on it, or they can't cut that way, or load through that hip, or whatever. So I got to make them aware that hey, you can't do this. Maybe it's through film. Maybe it's through film of showing them their game. You know, I sat down one guy this summer going into Minto and I was like, hey, you can't go this way. If I was the defensive coach of the other team, I would have you shut down so easily because I know movement patterns. And I, yes, I'm, I'm privy to you being in here, but I'm watching you. I'm like, you can't go this way physically. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. It's easy. I, it's easy. I, you, I know where you're going to go because I can tell that you can't go the other way anytime. Um, so, but he didn't realize that. Now he's aware of that, but he still can't do it. Right. So, so that's one of the stages. So yeah. now I got to break it down and show him how to do that. And guess what? He sucked at it. And he still sucks at it, but we got another four months to get better at it. So now we can start to make that. So now he's he's aware of it, but he still sucks at it. Now we got to do it enough. I got to break that movement down for him that he can do it well, but think about it. And now the only way he's going to do that well, not think about it after we do it well and thinking about it is to do reactive stuff in here, competition stuff in here, and then get him on the floor and start doing it at pace with somebody slashing his wrist right. and trying to knock him on his ass. So we've got to go, yeah, we've got to break down the, the to get to the parts. We've got to take it back to the whole, but then we also have to, we've got to be conscious of these four stages of learning because if I just say, hey, we've done it once, go and do it on, the, do it on your game or do it in a practice, he won't be able to. He's not at that stage. And if he does it, he's going to do it so slow that he won't be able to get the pass off, he won't get the shot off, and he's going to get knocked down, he might get hurt. I'm, well, I'm assuming the last that last stage, like when you see an athlete kind of fit that last stage, that would be just, you know, a game like game 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 situation like you know if because i'm assuming you know you add pressure to it uh it's a high pressure situation a whole bunch of stuff is happening what would an athlete want to revert back to is old habits old movement patterns um you know so maybe it's, it hasn't been actualized yet and it's not a it's not truly integrated in their tool set absolutely absolutely and i mean that's it's spot on when you get fatigued and when there's pressure you do what's unconscious and you've heard it from reporters. You've, you've seen a Kobe Bryant when he put up 81 points in a game against the Raptors. He, reporters will say, oh, this guy's unconscious right now. He's, go, like, he's in the zone. Michael Jordan, like, you've seen the greats. But especially with someone like Kobe Bryant, um, I, I remember listening to this not too long ago, and he was saying what people don't realize, like all of those moves that you saw me make in the, you know, the third, the fourth quarter of that game against Toronto where he, where he, where he scored 81 points, like those are all movements that he's practiced over and over and over again. Like those were, you know, positioned on the floor. He was like he just had to execute. Yep. Yeah. He was unconsciously competent with those movements because at one point he wasn't. Right. At one point he was, and these are the greats. At one point he was unconsciously incompetent with those movements. He didn't even know that he couldn't do them. And then either a coach came to him and said, hey, let's try this. Or he watched film and realized how defenses were stopping him. And he's like, hey, I need to do this to be able to beat this defense. And he had to practice it so many times and suck at it so much so that when he got to that end of the game and he was fatigued, and this is where the greats are the greats. You know, Michael Phelps, listening to an interview on, on Bob, from Bob Bowman on Michael Phelps, and he said he didn't realize this until so Bob Bowman was Michael Phelps' swim coach. He said he didn't realize until after Phelps retired this. But Phelps told him he spent 70% of his time with his meditation and, and visualization, visualizing what would go wrong. Whereas what I always heard as an athlete was visualize the perfect me, what grace, goes, yeah. whatever. But he wanted to be 
he wanted to know so well what could go wrong that if it did, he could do it right. If he only ever visualized perfect and then something bad happened, he couldn't, he couldn't do anything because he had never practiced for that. So it's almost like um, subconsciously practicing contingency plans. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's where, where your agility comes in. You've got to figure out, okay, you've got to know enough about your sport to know how is the defense going to try to stop me. But now I know what I have to do to beat them. But at the end of the game, you're going to do whatever you're most comfortable with. And, and hopefully what you're most comfortable with is better than what the defense is most comfortable with because we're just going comfort against comfort here and, and strength versus strength. But the more things that you're comfortable with, the more th- options you have to beat them. If the defense is only comfortable with one thing and you're really comfortable with three things, guess what? You've got a three times better chance of beating them because they're only comfortable stopping you one way. You can do your other two. Really, as an, as an athlete, what you want your sports coach to, to do in that instant is pointing out to you your tendencies. Like, what are you good at? What, are you, you know, what do you suck at? Um, and then help you develop as a, as, a, as a player that way, right? Yeah, I think so. And then, so as a strength and conditioning coach, I see that from a movement standpoint, that's, that's my job. With the lacrosse guys, everything happens so fast. But we need to practice it and practice it and practice it and practice because I don't expect this sport coach to understand biomechanics and movement. They should understand the X's and O's and systems and team play and how does this guy interact with this guy and what button do I have to push to get him to perform on game day? In my opinion, that's the sport coach. So my job is if this guy can't cut left, I need to show him how to cut left because this coach needs him to cut, cut left and he can't cut left. Guess what? He'll never cut left even though the coach told him cut left. <laughs> Right. So I need to break it down. I need to get them into competition. This goes back to the mental. I need them competing. If they're not competing, so if they don't have anybody else on their team that can compete with them in a defensive situation, in, in my in my settings, if we go 1v1, we'll do a lot of 1v1 before any game day. When I was working with uh, the junior A team in the past three years, before game day, we went 1v1 to finish off the practice. It was fun. It was light. But guess what? What they didn't understand was subconsciously, I'm showing them how to beat a defender one-on-one. And it's pretty real. It's real. It's real. There's breaking rights. There's there's punishment from the other guys. It's like I said, it's fun, but and and, and it has to be fun. But and we'll go small sided, like five on five, like you know tag games, or capture the or like uh, take flag football. Again, you're you're looking. But before that, we'll break down. Okay, this is how you need to change direction. This is how you need to cut. This is how you need to shuffle. This is blah blah blah. Okay, well now so we've broken it down in that session. Now it's put into a live game. But a live game where they don't have to worry about catching a ball, a live game where they don't have to worry about getting knocked. So we've taken away some variables. Exactly. And we've made it a bit more about physically just work on your movement with competition so that it's not just walk through it. But we had to walk through it before we got to that point. Right. So I don't I don't know if that makes sense or not, Dorian. But, yeah, I mean, I see it as my job if they need to if it's if it's moving, if it's locomotion in their sport, I need to do it. And I need to do it from, so if it's reactive, I need to do it because they, they need to be able to physically do that. Now what they need is they need their sport to show them the pattern of when to do it. You know, that's fascinating. Yeah. No, I, I think, yeah, if you know, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the, I guess one, one of the ways I kind of interpret some of the things you, you just mentioned, it's like, as, um, as you're, as, as their strength and conditioning coach, to some some degree, you are responsible for the dexterity of movement. Like, how many you know, like how many athletes do you see 
especially at a high level, um, that make a bad pass look great because they were able to um, put themselves into certain positions and still make that play work somehow. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's just unconscious. Some of those things you like you you can't train every scenario. Like I can't tra- like when you see uh, OBJ in football catch over the over the head leaning back one handed catches. It, I mean, I can't get ready for every position that ball might be in. But when you watch his practices, he's catching one handed passes above his head. He's getting ready for certain things like that. Now, if he needs to be able to jump forty inches to make that, and he can only jump thirty six, it's the conditioning coach's job to make him jump forty inches because now there's more catches he can make above his head reaching back because he's more athletic right now i'm not going to throw a ball to every degree in front of him on the spectrum of okay he's gonna be one inch above his head and one inch out no you're not going to do that right but but there's certain tools that go into that catch regardless of where it is and and that i think is the conditioning coach's job you know there's certain tools in the cross that you need to be able to um and more on offense in terms of kind of the agility per se because that's where you've got to beat somebody defense is more about i think defense is more about you still need the physical attributes but it's more about a mindset and who just doesn't want to give up who's willing who's i'm willing to work crazy hard i'll see defenders that aren't nearly as athletic as other guys in terms of speed in terms of quickness in terms of i think is off the off the charts they just like look at a dog on a bone he might not have the same strength but he's going to hold on to that thing until the other guy decides to give up. And that's defense in lacrosse, in my opinion, is who's willing, really willing to work harder. And then if you're really willing to work that hard, okay, let's make you more athletic too. But the offense is, is less about who's willing to work hard and more about because you can beat the guy with one move. In that 30-second shot clock on defense, if you give up once, the other guy's going to score. And a 30-second shot clock on offense, you might be able to stand around for 15 seconds. You'll see it at the end of a game, right? There's 25 seconds left on the clock. Shot clock's off. Literally, they'll hold the ball until six seconds are left. Six to seven seconds. Which tells you that all an offense needs is six or seven seconds to to run a play and get the job done. But guess what? If at the 15-second mark, a defenseman was not in the right spot and not ready to go, one pass, two pass, you're done. So that defenseman had to be ready to go for 30 seconds, but offense only needs six or seven. It's, it's less on, on offense about the mindset and more about the pure athleticism and being able to ju- cut and juke and stop and spin and, 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 and all of that, in my opinion. So that's where we need to work more on that is with the offensive guys. Very interesting. Um, just real quick, um, I'd like to just touch on the subject of recovery. What are what are some of the things um, that you're uh, that you're doing um, as a conditioning coach? Like we could talk monitoring, or maybe even you know just stressing the importance of it. Because I think with especially if you do train quite a bit, um, that aspect becomes more and more important. Do well, your ability to recover is going to dictate when can you train again, how hard can you train again, you know, all of those things. So. Sometimes I'm sure you've had some similar conversations. Um, like I, I would have athletes, you know, come in in the morning. I'd look at them like, Jesus Christ, like, you know, you look tired. What's going on? It's like, oh, I played Fortnite for five hours. And then you're like, oh, that's how it is. Okay. Yep. Um, so obviously there is, you know, a little bit of education on the coach's part. I think that needs to happen. 
um, and to actually make them realize like they cannot outtrain um, like they, they can't outtrain a bad a bad diet a um, you know poor poor sleeping habits like all of that stuff but um, just wondering you take on that for um, swimmers lacrosse players yeah it's <laughs> you're right this Fortnite thing is uh, it's been uh, it's been something but um I like what you said that you, you can't out train poor sleep and poor poor nutrition um i can't remember who i who i heard it from but uh it uh, essentially I, I believe it was um if you get under six hours of sleep your nutrition you, you start breaking it down as if you're a diabetic so so if you have fantastic nutrition but you're not getting enough sleep guess what that fantastic nutrition is no longer fantastic and 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 vice and then the same is if if you i think it's if you get under seven and a half hours of sleep you lose 30 percent of your aerobic capacity that's insane right there's there's a whole bunch of stats along those lines and like the, this whole sleep thing um i just finished uh matthew walker's book why we sleep right and yep. he's awesome unbelievable i mean even for myself you know i've changed quite a few things um to kind of I'll clean up my 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 sleeping routine because of how detrimental it can be um, for performance, for long term health, like even you know, how long you live. Yep. Um, it goes it goes pretty deep. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, and that, that was one of the guys that uh, yeah, I've heard a bunch of things. Thanks for mentioning his name there. Um, so so yeah, I mean, big education. And I think what you find, what I find with most athletes is most athletes are willing to work hard at the hard stuff, but they don't want to work hard at the easy stuff. So they're willing to come in here and work hard. And that's hard. You got to show up, you got to put in effort, blah, blah, Uh, But they're not willing to go to bed earlier, which really, if you think about it, it's pretty easy. Just lay your head down, close your eyes, and fall asleep. <laughs> like that's probably one of the easiest things you can do is go to bed earlier and get more sleep. In theory. Yeah, in theory. But but in practice it's one of the hardest things to get a teenager to do when there's video games there's netflix there's social media there's parties there's girls there's boys there's um so a lot of it's education and trying to get across them the importance of doing the easy things because i think it as as humans we think if it's easy to do it might not be that important um and therefore we're not going to do it and they would rather come in and work hard than go to bed early um, so then it's trying to get them to understand why, why they can't, especially if they're not going to go to bed early, why they can't work hard because everything's already messed up. And, and, and if we're going to take the, let's just say your, your aerobic is down 70% or 30%, sorry, down to 70. And, and my numbers are probably off a little bit. So forgive me on that. But, um, if you come in and you're supposed to be doing a 70% day and you're down 30% in what you're a maximum you're really close to a maximum percent day so it's a freaking tough day and they'll grind through it but now how does that affect the next day and like i was talking about with swimmers when we get a quadrennial how does that compound how does this one day of you screwing up but you do that every week it accumulates right accumulates massively and now you're sick on your taper as a lacrosse player you don't have the measures you don't have the feedback how from when you come back from college depending on when your team gets beat out ncaa and field and you're getting ready for your junior a leading into minto so you're back probably may let's say to minto be starting in the middle of august how does the accumulation of drinking every saturday night with your buddies affect you over four months three months but you don't know because there's no measure the next day in practice especially if it's a saturday and you don't practice on sunday mm-hmm. you don't practice until tuesday you've had three four days off you think you're good and everybody on the team did it 
So everybody performs suboptimally. So you still might look like you're getting better because you're showing up and doing your recovery session. You're showing up and doing your weights and the other guy didn't, but you're getting better than like, if you're the richest guy in a poor neighborhood, are you really rich? Well, yeah, compared to everybody around you, but now put yourself in a neighborhood that has right, the richest people in the world. It's almost like living in a bubble yeah. because you only have, you know, that level of competition around you. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm getting a little off topic here, sorry, Darren, but uh, how do I do the recovery? I, a lot of it, honestly, is how are they going in here and how are they going in their sport? And then trying to, again, with some of the, some of the guys for lacrosse, it's trying to prove a point to them. Because if they don't understand the importance of the recovery, it's going to be, all right, well, let's come and do that workout. Oh, you can't finish that workout? Yeah, this is why. Oh, you want to come in hungover? Okay. We're still doing that energy system session that you... Oh, you only made it through half it and then you puked today? Okay. Are you okay with that? Because, I am i mean, this is your career, right? So some of it is, is hard knocks, tough lessons. Most of them are pretty good. I don't have a big issue with a lot of them. Um, but like I said, lacrosse needs to, in my opinion, lacrosse needs to look at themselves more professionally. If there was a million dollars on the line right now, would you do the things you did in terms of lack of sleep, lack of food? And myself included, I got to look at that. You know, how much better could I be as a coach if I got all my food and sleep dialed in? And then if I'm that much better as a coach, how much better are those athletes going to be? And if every session that I showed up to was worth a million dollars, and if I didn't perform to a certain amount, they could take that million dollars away from me, would I treat my, my, my recovery better? I think that's, a, that's like taking a performance mindset pretty much through all the levels there are, right? Yeah. Yeah, and if depending on how good you want to be at anything, you got to look at that. 1%, 1% compounds like look at the penny penny compounding mm-hmm. over a month i think you get 10 million dollars that penny at the beginning wasn't much but you double that every day for 30 days 31 days i think you're at 10 mil what is that if that's your speed what if that's your strength what if that's now is that compounding going to equal a 10 million dollar contract for somebody in some sport having said that what i will say with the lacrosse guys about recovery is the guys were really good this year in terms of doing a recovery session what I found in the past, and swimmers are getting better at this too, that I train, and this comes with the trust. A lot of times coming out of a meet, swimmers want to take Monday off. That's what the club would give them. They didn't think they would come in here. And I've, I've instilled in them that, no, we can get more out of you coming in and us doing a recovery session than you doing nothing. The lacrosse guys, you know, I had a, a, quite a few of them after, you know, they would play three games in a weekend, travel to Saskatchewan on a bus, drink after the last one, I'm back in on a Monday morning and get their recovery session in so they're ready for practice on Tuesday night. Just, uh, I guess, well, I'm, I'm just curious, what, uh, what would like a typical re- recovery session look like? What kind of elements would you go over? What would, what would be the goal? The goal for that was, it was A, to get them moving. And part of it for the older guys was to keep them from drinking as much. Because if they knew they had to come in for a session, again, we got tricked them a bit. If they knew they had to come in for a session, they wouldn't go out quite as hard. Um, but more of it was to get them moving. And, and movement pattern. the biggest thing for me is movement patterns break down in sport. Because fatigue comes and you go back to your old thing. So we wanted to reinstill the movement patterns for them. It's the biggest reason why I would get it in there. So, you know, what would it entail? It would, it would look like a normal session in terms of run, jump, change direction, squat, bench, Olympic lift push pull whatever would it be a little bit more aerobic in nature a bit lighter it'd be or? a lot lighter okay. it'd be a lot lighter uh volume would be down pretty low load would be down pretty low um i wouldn't say it would really be much more aerobic in nature um i would just say that overall demands would be a lot lower 
um, focusing. The main thing was focusing on getting their sequencing back. Um, and then at that point, we could address a few things that were the weakness. So while it's fresh in their mind, okay, you couldn't do this as a swimmer. You couldn't do this as a lacrosse player. Let's, let's do just a tiny bit to set the week up for us to work on that. So now it's in the brain. Okay, we're going to start working on this. Um, and, and just basically it was, it was to get them ready to get ready, to get going, essentially. Whereas if you take the day off, it's too easy to, in my opinion, now the first session back on the Tuesday becomes your first session and you're getting back into the feel of things. You're getting back into the rhythm. You're, I mean, I, I find as a coach, if, if I don't coach seven days a week, my first day back, my first session back, I feel kind of rusty. Yeah, for, absolutely. For the first five minutes, maybe, maybe only five minutes, but five, five minutes compounds over four years. So it's just trying to keep the groove going for everything and, and address some things, but it's more or less just keep that groove going, keep them going. Um, less about the science of how we could flush or how we could help, re- like, quote unquote, recovery. Mm-hmm. It was more it was more from a, a feel standpoint and a mindset standpoint is, is why I really I really stress it with them. Is that perceived by the players like pretty, pretty well? Um, do they like those sessions or is it more like kind of a grind? Like at the beginning, it was that. And then this goes back again to what we talked at the beginning of the trust of you trust me. Right. And so then so then they come in and they do it and they feel great. They feel great leaving. They feel great throughout the day. They f- their next session's better. And then what happened was someone would start asking me, hey, can I get in tomorrow? Which is when I know, hey, they felt the difference. Or it's placebo. I don't know. But they thought it was better. And if they think it's better, it's better. In Fair my enough. opinion. Oh, yeah. Right? So at the beginning, yeah, it was a bit of a push to, to force them to do it. Um, but uh, towards, towards the end, after they've done it more and more, the guys get more about hey let's do this and then the great thing is th- it's the culture thing is if two people are asking about coming in after three games well that third guy doesn't want to be the guy left out that swimmer doesn't want to be the one thinking hey i'm not getting better why are these other swimmers coming in they must be getting like especially if they're already faster if the better ones are doing it everybody wants to do it yeah yeah that's that's uh that's a really really good point and i think this is one way you can kind of help foster a certain environment in your, in your training sessions as well right Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Awesome. Um, so, boy, I'd like to wrap up here with uh, the last couple questions. And um, any any other strength and conditioning coach, I'm always curious. Um, you know, what are you currently reading? What are you sort of interested in? What kind of topics? Um, you know, spark your curiosity. Um, yeah, doesn't have to be long, but you know, what's on your mind? What's going on? Um, yeah, I, I'll be honest through the summer. It's my craziest time. So I haven't done a ton of reading. Um, now I get back to fall where we're kind of like 13 kids off to school. Teams are ending. Minto wrapped up. Like you said, it's kind of swimming off season, international stuff's done. Um, so this is where I can, I can kind of sharpen myself again. But having said that, one of the, the, the biggest things I, I'm looking at right now is, is more is, is communication and leadership stuff. Um, I, I believe it was it was Brett um, Bartholomew at a conference I was at that was saying advice to young athletes or young coaches was learn your technical stuff, but once you get good enough, learn how to communicate better and learn how to be a better coach. Um, and then you can always continue to get better at it. But from what he was seeing and, and, and Ron McKeefrey and a couple other guys were at that as well. And what they're saying and what they were seeing in the industry, and I'm going to respect them who have gone before me, it's, that so many people are working on the technical and the science and this and that, that nobody knows how to convey it anymore. And we're not actually coaches anymore. And if these guys are seeing it, who've been around longer than me, then 
yeah, I'm going to listen to them because they're, I mean, pretty influential. They're doing some stuff. They've done some stuff. Um, so what I'm looking at is more the stuff I'm reading is, is leadership type stuff. How do I develop that culture? How do I now pass on leadership? So how do I not only be a good leader, but get some of the athletes to become leaders to bring other athletes on under their wing and pass that along so that when guys go off to college, they're still in the gym. There's still a culture and there's still now somebody ready to step in and be the leader of the gym. And then when they go off to college, who else comes in? I mean, if we're doing our jobs right, these athletes shouldn't be with us forever, um, especially when you're dealing with teenagers. They should go off and get scholarship. They should be going off and, and going pro. They, should, they shouldn't be here forever, in my opinion. If they're here forever, I haven't done my job. <laughs> they haven't grown. They haven't, they haven't made it to the next level. Right, absolutely. So, so a lot of communication stuff, a lot of leadership stuff, building culture. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, looking at what great teams have done. Um, you know, a great book always is legacy. Look at what the All Blacks have done. Um, but uh, that's that's where most of my readings at right now. And like I said, I'll dive more into actual strength and conditioning side of things uh, now that I got a little bit more time. Any crazy uh, trends that you're observing? I guess in our community, there's always you know some some something that kind of starts coming onto the market and you know kind of fades away. Um, in my view, and you know, you can add on to that. Uh, I think the stuff that's not super fancy, the basic stuff um, that works, that has st stood the test of time. Um, you know, it's it's it, it might not be that flashy to put out on Instagram. Um, it might not be um, the coolest thing um, to, to you know to upload to Twitter or um, or Instagram or whatever. But you know, it's it, like there's a reason these things are still around because they tend to work. But as far as, you know, trends, is there anything that has caught your attention recently or? You, you know, honestly, like, Doran, that's, that's what I would have said. At least I haven't been paying a ton of attention through the summer. But what I have noticed quickly is powerlifting, Olympic lifting seems to be making a comeback. I don't know if it's just because the people I'm following, but the basics of let's get strong, let's mm -hmm. lift weight, let's, and let's do, let's do the right things the right way. Uh, I would have said pr pretty much what you said, but like I said, I haven't been paying a lot. I've been trying to stay away from it. Um, but if it's been here for a while and it works, probably works. Let's do it. Love it. Okay. Well, last but not least, um, where can people find out more about you, your services? Um, a little, like, give me, give me a quick plug, website, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever. Um, how can find out, how can people find out more about you? Um, so on Instagram, it's probably your best bait because then it links to everything else. Um, and it's just performance inspired training underscore in between the performance and inspired training. And then uh, Twitter is just my name, Tyler Shillington. And that should link you to everything else. Excellent. Well, let's wrap up here. This was a fantastic episode. I learned a ton as well. And probably going to listen to this a few more times. And um, thanks for coming on. Awesome, Dorian. Thanks for having me, man. This is, this is great. My pleasure.